Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. So today on the program, we talk to my buddy Corbett Redford. I know him from his band Bobby Joe Bull and the Children McNuggets. Back in the late 90s, Corbett and his partner Dan used to put on this thing called Geek Fest, which was basically a place for all these bands that didn't have anywhere else to play. Give them an opportunity, they set up a, in a field with a generator, and all these bands would show up with their gear and play the hell out of some great music, and we had a good time. He's a real community organizer. I mean, without Geek Fest, a lot of us wouldn't have gotten a chance to play some shows. Well, now he is the director and producer of a documentary called Turn It Around, the Story of East Bay Punk. covers over 30 years of uh, Bay Area punk music. It's got a focus on 924 Gilman, which is a little bit ironic because he started the Geek Fest because they they couldn't get into Gilman. Their band was considered more of a novelty acoustic folk act. I would equate it to true punk music. They just did what inspired them and... Anyway, Turn It Around talks about some of the more famous bands like Rancid and Green Day. It was actually executive produced by Green Day and narrated by Iggy Pop. This movie is awesome. I gotta check out a preview. I say this is one of the best music documentaries I've seen, and I've seen a lot. This one is top-notch, man. I can't wait. It's a theatrical release. Is uh, end of the month, 31 May. And then it's going to be followed up by uh, full theatrical releases nationwide in June. And, of course, uh, it'll be coming to you on DVD and Blu-ray, I assume, and uh, streaming services as well later. So everybody should be able to get a chance to check this out. Again, turn it around to Story East Bay Punk. We're going to talk to Corbin about how he got the job to direct and produce this film. All the trials and tribulations of putting a project like this together. We'll talk a little bit about his background growing up in Pinole, uh, his role now as a father. He has a two-year-old son, and we'll talk a bit about Bobby Joe Ebola and the Children McNuggets. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Turn It Around, the Story of East Bay Punk, featuring Corbett Redford. Well, welcome, uh, Corbett Redford, to Music Live Radio. How are you doing today? Good. How about you, Dan? Good. It's been a while. We did an interview, a uh, two-part interview with uh, Bobby Joe Bola a few years ago. It was pretty extensive. It was, I love. I was listening to it again the other day, and yeah. I was looking at the catalog, and <laughs> you've been doing this for some time. <laughs> yes, we've been doing it for since 2009, I believe. That's incredible. Now that I have a kid, just like you do, uh, I've slowed down a bit, but I'm still kicking a few of them out there, and we've got help from some others, so it's going well well thanks for doing this one today you've been working on this movie three three and a half years turn it around the east bay punk story before we get into that which is the focus of this interview i want to know a little bit more about you so just as a summary for people that might not have heard the first bobby joe bola talk about growing up in the east bay 
specifically Pinole, right? I mean, that's where we're doing this interview right now, and you're still here. Yeah, I left for a while. It's Contra Costa County. It's on the outskirts of of Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, West Contra Costa County is where I'm, where we currently are, where I live in Pinole. Um, I grew up here. I left for about 15 years. Actually, that's an understatement. I ran screaming. Uh, uh, didn't just leave yeah. and and to Oakland uh-huh. because the thing about Pinole and West Contra Costa County is there's no BART here. So if you're young and you want to interact with the world and culture, and especially if you're young and you want to play music or, or make art, it's kind of hard to do here. And I think that, you know, we certainly, there's advantages to kind of being in a bubble too, you know? Uh, sure. We wound up, you know, having less of a filter, which, you know, when we finally made our way out to kind of like the progressive, when, when Gilman and that culture finally accepted us, we were in need of some, um, we were in sore need of some Berkeley lessons. I think, yeah. <laughs> as, you know, so far as being citizens of the world, you know, it was just so boring here and there um per capita i think i mentioned this in one of the other interviews that uh there was more fast food here than any, anywhere else in north america mm-hmm. in in the mid to late 90s you know the police presence was really large they decided they were going to put uh as part of an experimental program put cameras on every corner in Pinole. so if you were a kid it you kind of felt like it was 1984 realized you know so um you know about 90 96 97 i with my friends, we all just decided, maybe it was even later, 98, 99, we, we all moved out to a warehouse in Oakland. And uh, we had been doing Geek Fest for a long time. My band, Bobby Joy Bola and the Children McNuggets, was kind of the flagship of that festival, the Geek Fest Festival. And we just we became part of that out there. And then in uh, 2007, my wife and I, uh, she says, you know, my parents live in Pinole. And, you know, when she first said that, you know, I was like, she's like, have you ever heard of it? I'm like, yeah. Like, like yeah. oh, no, I'm retarding to the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I certainly know it. You know, and, and in fact, her parents, they're in their backyard is my old high school. Yeah. Which we saw bulldoze recently, which is, if you've never had that experience, it's kind of a gratifying. If you didn't have a good high school experience, watching your high school getting bulldozed is pretty gratifying. You know, we were looking to buy a house. Uh, the place that we were living in Oakland uh, by uh, MacArthur Bart was, I don't know what was going on, but, you know, at the time there was a lot of killing going on on our block. Mm. Enough to a, a point where um, we would come home and the whole block was shut off because supposedly somebody was running around with a machine gun. And then huh. a week later, um, I woke up to the gunshots and she woke up to the crying. And then a week later, they shut down another street right by us so we couldn't get in because there was a guy wandering in the middle of the street with a gun. And so I think, you know, I, we just decided, okay, well, let's try to, let's, let's cobble together our resources and try to figure out something and try to buy a home. Yeah. yeah. And buying a home in Oakland with the tech boom and all this stuff is like next to impossible. Oh, and she's like, crazy. would you be at all, at, all, at all opposed to going back to Pinole or, and you know, houses are more affordable out there. Obama had this like $10,000 house credit that he was giving people, you know, and, I had to really make a conscious decision, like, you know, better, you know, kind of bullets whizzing than, you know, than crickets waking me up, you know, or, 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 you know, uh, everywhere is what you make it. So I, I, and, you know, I think it was one of the more adult decisions I made in my life to say, you know, I can put that kind of 
teenage angst badge back down mm-hmm. and, and move back here. So we've been back here for about eight years. This looks like a pretty good place to raise a kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It really does. Yeah. Driving around. It's boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, that, that's going to be interesting when I cross that bridge with um, my, my kid, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to shield him from the world, you know, um, yeah. you know, so I don't know. I mean, I, you know, the, I think the dream is to be able to, you know, eventually afford something in Oakland or Berkeley, but if it never happens, Panola a pretty quiet town where there's not much going on. Not so. too many bullets. Not too many by. bullets flying. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So talking a little bit about Bobby Joe Bola, the formation and some of the highlights of being in that band. Um, <laughs> so I think a couple of years ago, it was like our 20th year of existence. We had taken a hiatus for a long time, but the funny part of it was Dan and I were always roommates or like yeah. hanging out. And I think there was just this time when, we decided that it was best to stop, you know, it started in, I think 94, our first record came out in 95. You know, we played over a thousand shows or more. Uh, we put out tons of music videos, recorded over a hundred songs, put out two books, really just made it our avenue for creativity for so long. I mean, we got to headline the great American music hall. We, we opened for Green Day about a year or so ago, which was pretty fantastic due to my association with the movie. There was a documentary that came out about us a couple of years back called Trainwreck to Narnia, you know, kind of about our ambitions and our station as a kind of underground, you know, bordering on novelty act, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, so I, I think to me, it was Bobby Joe Bola was always about flexibility. And, uh, you know, we always said the name Bobby Joey Bola and the children McNuggets, us being at the core two people, it lent itself to being the kind of vehicle that uh, we would want it to be whenever, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it wasn't just about music. It was about expression, you know? And so I, I don't think people have seen the last of us. Um, you know, we, this movie came in like a, like a tornado and, uh, whew, and, and it just took over pretty much every aspect of my life. And, so the band went on hiatus right as we released two books. So we didn't get a chance to tour on them. Yeah. Uh, but this was just too big of a shot to pass up. And uh-huh. Dan and I, Dan came onto the project as a story editor. And uh, I love Bobby Joe Boa. It, it has been such a good thing to me and for me. And uh, I'm proud to, to be a part of that, that legacy, I guess. So this movie came about right before you guys got pregnant, probably then. Um, let's see. So, you know, it must've been within the first year of, the first of year, production yeah. that Melissa got pregnant and nothing is the same after this thing is <laughs> over, you know, uh, it's been a blur. It's funny how, you know, such a short span of time can change you. You know, like it feels like forever. Yeah. How did, how did that have an impact? Not only on, on this movie, but also on your role in Bobby Joe Bola. As far as uh, having our son, the, the movie had first took over. The movie became, it just became this ever-growing project. It just started out very simple, and then it just, it, it took on a life. And that consumed own. your time. I mean, everything yeah. consumed all my time. Okay. And uh, so, you know, and I was, I was working all the time. I mean, there, on average, I would always, I've always, during the course of this, at least work 60 hours a week, sometimes a hundred hours a week. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was working in Oakland at uh-huh. Jingletown Studios at Green Day Studio. Okay. 
So the commute was there too. So that was already present, you know, and I was working so much, you know, Green Day was funding this. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, we were making a great living, Melissa and I, she's a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think, you know, when Rex arrived, you know, he, the lion's share of his his upbringing, you know, his early Caregiving, upbringing yeah, yeah. Was, was mom, you sure, know, yeah. I don't um, know because goes. I was just constantly working, but yeah. giving him time is, I've never had to meter something so much. <laughs> I've always been like so full bore yeah. into projects. And I want to say, well, the real, the reason why I would want to make sure that I was available to him and to know I was this presence was so he could feel that and grow with that, mm-hmm. you know? I wouldn't want him to feel without that, you know, uh, but really it's that <laughs> I want to absorb as much of him as possible, yeah, you know? yeah. like being around him, you know, and m- metering my energy and my stress and things like this is kind of a, a catalyst for calming in uh-huh. a lot of ways. And as he grows older and more cognizant, even more so, yeah. you know, uh, I really have to, whew, this project is the dynamics <laughs> of my kind of, I don't know, the, my meter, uh, uh, my, the dynamics of my, my walk through my day are just, it's changed me. And, <laughs> and then he, and he's changed me, you know, uh, by, by making me think about what I'm focusing on and, and to uh, where I put my energy and time, you know, and, and Bobby Joe Bulla, you know, Dan and I were like, well, this is pretty, a pretty big opportunity. So we put the band on hiatus and we would only take select shows and, we were still playing for like the first couple of years of the movie here and there. Sure. Uh, but then it was just like, then it, it took f- full <laughs> over and uh, we didn't play for like a year or something. And then we put, we opened for green day for a benefit for uh, some fire victims and the AK press warehouse burnt down. And then Dan went to work on another project. He went to burning man and uh, to do a festival and he left the project since then we haven't performed. And mm. so recently we've been talking about what we would want to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the dust to settle from this first. You know? Yeah. Well, you're getting, you're almost there, right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's a big question. So yeah. let, let's get into the start. How did you get involved in this project to begin with? September, 2013, I got a message from Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. And a little backstory, uh, when I was a freshman, he and the bass player of Green Day, Mike Durnt, were uh, seniors. Mm-hmm. And so they were always kind of in our consciousness here. They were always in our community. And, and I, I, I knew the guys I went to, I think John geek snuck me out of the house uh, with my friend, Mark Bressum in 92 to go see them at the Berkeley square. You know, um, they were a big deal here before they were a big deal to the world. So they were kind of always in my consciousness and I was a huge fan of that band, mm-hmm. you know, and, and get, and getting to know them over the years was even more surreal and wonderful, you know, mm-hmm. uh, then they've always been supportive of geek fest and, and uh, Bobby joy Bola. And so Billy wrote me one day and said, Hey, I'm looking for this uh, footage. I was wondering if you might be able to know how to find it. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I do. And, uh, I went and found it and I thought, well, there's a few other people that I know that have some footage of, of green days, early years. Why don't I talk to them? Maybe before I knew it, I had a drive with about 20 or 30 uh, early videos on it. And I brought it to him and uh, he says, uh, this is fantastic. You know, thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to do a movie, I think about our early years, you know, would you know anybody who could direct it? And I said, I can. (laughs) 
And I don't know where I got that. Yeah, I was going to say, what gave you the confidence? Well, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of uh, work with videos for your band. Bobby Joe Bola self-produced like 14 or so Mm -hmm. music videos in like the course of two years. But it was this project that was leading up to that that we had been working on. I've been putting updates on Instagram about, we did the Bobby Joy Bullis songbook, which w- with uh, mm-hmm. Jason Chandler from horrible comics and the frustrators. And it was this, you know, over a hundred pages of song lyrics and writing and working with like over 40 illustrators and photographers mm-hmm. to kind of bring these songs and, the, and their chords and lyrics to life. It was this huge project with a real publishing deadline. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of putting out communiques on social media about like, Still alive, you know, and <laughs> I remember the Green Day guys cheering me on. I think they knew that I was just crazy enough to take on something like <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. And I think that they knew that Bobby Joe Bullock has a reputation for making a whole lot out of very little, Yeah, you know, and we also have a reputation for working very, very hard. And like, getting products completed and released. So you got all those videos released. You got the books released. Yeah. That's not an easy feat. <laughs> right. It, it takes it takes a certain uh, something, and I don't really know what that is. I think it, or maybe it, it takes missing something. Um, but but so I said I can do it because I knew that I could. I was also between jobs at the time. Uh-huh. So I was like, you know, what am I going to do? Like, what, what's next, you know? And it was this crazy thing. And uh, so he said, yeah, I think you can. Let me talk to Dirt and let's meet tomorrow. And before I knew it, I was on this journey. Originally, the film was going to be about Green Day's early years. They'd also had this idea to kind of make it about some of the the big bands that have been out of the scene, like uh, Rancid or Jawbreaker, Neurosis, a lot of the kind of landmark bands, you know, that came out of it. But over the course of the next three months, suddenly it became very apparent that the people who were willing to interview and the footage that we were getting and the photos we were getting, that this project was becoming much larger. Mm Mm-hmm. Scope creep. <laughs> it, it is scope creep. And, you know, and it happened to give me something better too. The uh, the, uh, the oral history book by Jack uh, Jack Bulware and Silka Tudor. Oh yeah, yeah, great book. They started with, I think, a two year deadline and a four hundred page limit. Mm-hmm. They wound up with like eight hundred pages after four years. Mm-hmm. They originally wanted to make the book just about Gilman, and then they realized, oh, we're in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're you know Gilman didn't arrive in a bubble. And that's exactly the path. That, I didn't know that until later. Uh-huh. And that's exactly the path that we that we went on. Uh-huh. And it was like, you have to provide some context, you know, and you have to honor what led up to it and recognize the conditions that made Gilman possible. So does that get into the title, Turn It Around? What, what does that come from? Well, so Turn It Around is the name of a compilation that was curated and designed uh, by David Hayes, one of the co-founders of Lookout Records. Before he was part of Lookout Records, he was tapped by Tim Yohannan, uh, the head of Maximum Rock and Roll Radio and Magazine, to make a double seven-inch compilation uh, as a benefit for Gilman. It was a it was a marker for time of the first year of Gilman and you know the bands that were were kind of emerging out of that scene. But if you open up the inside of of the double seven-inch comp, turn it around. There was this kind of manifesto, and I think it was written by. Tim Yohannan, David Hayes, Walter Glazer, different uh, people who were volunteering at Gilman at that time. And the idea was they wanted to turn the scene around. You had the very artful kind of uh, wonderful early San Francisco punk scene. Then you had the birth of hardcore. And it brought this uh, kind of aggression to make punk shows battlefields in a sense. Then you had the rise of the nationalist skinhead movement. Sure. And these people 
you know, thought that hardcore shows was a great, were a great place to come and beat people up, mm-hmm. you know, and be racist, you know? So this would be like early eighties, 84, 86 time. This is early eighties. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, uh, clubs started closing, mm. pay to play kind of went up, right? Club promoters were ripping people off. And so there was this need to quote unquote, turn it around. And Tim Yohannan saw that, uh, out of maximum rock and roll radio came the magazine the magazine started to flourish, so he had some capital, mm-hmm. and uh, so he, you know, he he invested in opening up Gilman Street, and the Turn It Around compilation was that that time capsule of that time and that mission that they had in opening Gilman. And Turn It Around does that kind of refer to getting back to more of the spirit of what punk rock was supposed to be, based on the San Francisco scene, or was it just to get out away from the hardcore and skinhead and and what what was turning into i i think that to to make it in more more of a positive thing yes, more of a okay. uh, growth as opposed to destruction mm-hmm. one of the other things is to like they get the gilman did early on was it it lambasted against being genre specific mm-hmm. it wasn't just about punk you yeah. know and uh which is crazy because if you look on the back of the turn it around compilation it says file under geek core uh-huh. And seeing that years later with Geek Fest, and yeah, we had yeah. no idea that about any of this, you know, we felt very akin, you know, in making this. I was like, wow, this isn't wasn't my era necessarily, but I think it's about any kind of rebirth, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, some people tell us that you know punk was ebbing and flowing. You had its birth, you kind of had this decline with the with the violence and the you know the clubs closing down and things like Feinstein really shut down a lot in San Francisco. It didn't really nurture you know, these kinds of clubs happening. Mm-hmm. That, that's why Gilman had the rules. Uh, they wanted to make it to where people didn't feel afraid coming to a show. They made rules. No alcohol, no violence, no sexism, no homophobia, no racism. And over the years, they've added more. But mm-hmm. those were basic tenets at the beginning of Gilman. And so the idea was just, uh, if you can come and create and be part of something without, you know, being a total jerk, then you're punk. You're in. Mm-hmm. Like, Come be here and be weird and be yourself and feel safe. Cool. Your partner, Anthony Marcatello. Yeah. Now, how did he get involved? Since you had approached Green Day originally, did you bring him into the fold? Yeah. Billy Joe reached out to me. I got him the stuff. He said, you know anybody? I said, yeah, me. <laughs> and, yeah. Then, and then I realized. I need a team. <laughs> oh, I've never made a film before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I actually, I've made all the videos and everything, but Anthony's a film major. And yeah. He was Finky Binks of the old Geek Fest. Okay. Uh, so he was a you know an old roommate. He was one of the Spam Records crew. Yeah, yeah. And you know he worked with Bruce Sinoski on a, on a Discovery Channel program. He had made a feature film where John Geek and myself and Dan Abbott starred in it called Neptune. He had the degree. You know, you know. He, we we had started a documentary about Dory Tourette shortly after Dory's passing. Geez, almost a decade ago. And then Anthony had a couple kids and. Things fell yeah. by the wayside, and it didn't have a you know budget. So, like, thankfully, Green Day you know funded this sure, to yeah. allow us to do this excavation. So we had started something then, you know. So he came in and said, "Well, what are you what are you doing?" You know, and I'm like, "Well, this is what I think I got," you know. Mm-hmm. And then he actually started kind of like helping me hash out before he was even because it was just me in an office mm-hmm. originally. And then eventually, Mike's like, "Actually, you need a crew." <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> and, uh, and i was like yeah well and i was like what about anthony's like and mike knew anthony already mike durant from green day mm-hmm. and so he came on and he did a lot of things he basically i guess in the documentary world is something called a co-director which isn't like also a director it's a it's its own term or something he co-wrote it 
which uh-huh. in documentary world is basically assembling the final story edit. So you, we took all these story editing pieces that Dan and Melissa Dale and Frank Pigaro and, you know, all these people made and, uh, Anthony and I were the ones who handed it to the video editor, Greg Schneider mm-hmm. as a complete, you know, interview narrative. And then we would send him a list of archive items and then Greg would make it pop and make it move and, and make it alive, you know? Uh-huh. So Anthony Crow wrote this with me. He was one of the, uh, he was a camera operator on it along with Melissa Dale and our director of photography, Greg Schneider, who was also the editor. But I mean, Anthony is just, he and I have been on this ride since the very beginning, you mm-hmm. know? So certainly <laughs> the highs and lows, he's been here through the whole thing. So help us define the role of producer in this. So there's what, three main producers of this? You know, there's executive producers executive who producers. are the folks that funded it, which yeah. is Green Day and Pat Magnarella. And, you know, they're the ones that garner the distribution and, and um, you know, approve the budget and mm-hmm. things like that. A supervising producer, which was Chris Dugan, Green Day's engineer, uh, but he also is a, he does a lot of other things. It's kind of the in-house Green Day guy. So if we had issues or, you know, we had immediate concerns that we needed addressed or, or things with, we needed help with, mm-hmm. he was there. And he was also there to, to make sure like the whole kind of process was moving. If I happened to get overwhelmed or stopped, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the producer. So I'm the director and the producer. And a producer basically just does everything. I would make the decisions directorially. I would, um, you know, assemble the talking points. I would, uh, you know, approve the edit. I would do all that stuff. But as a producer, whew, I would schedule the interviews. I would uh, gather licenses. I would just work, work on design for the poster. And it's kind of endless, you know. Just pretty much every background element you can think of. Everything. And not think of probably that that goes into the making of a movie. No. I mean, the DVD yeah. menu elements, mm-hmm. the... Um, Jeez, man. You know, booking flights for our crew to go. We went to New York, I think, seven times. Los Angeles, like 20 times. Um, uh, Portland, a couple times. Wisconsin, Miami, to go meet with Iggy Pop. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I would, people tell me that I'm a great producer. (laughs) I I don't know if they know if I'm a good director yet. (laughs) Um, I feel like as an artist, that's, I don't know if that's hard to hear, but you're Uh like, you sure can make, you know, things happen and come to life, you know? Well, it's, and it's a good like, skill to have. <laughs> I think everybody, every artist yeah. in some sense wants to be like that pearl on a pillow. They yeah. want to be kind of respected or, or kind of, you know, at, for their ideas or something like yeah. that. And as opposed to just being a workhorse, you know? Uh-huh. And I think I definitely, I feel like I, <laughs> a lot of people go, man, that guy works hard. <laughs> you know? So I hope people enjoy the movie and I don't necessarily want to be, a pearl on a pillow, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, cause that's not what punk tells us to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can do both, you know, would you like to be a director and producer on another project? Or do you think those roles were better split between multiple people, two or more, or, or I, to be honest you- with you, some people would tell me that I'm a control freak. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would respond by saying that the reason why I always, have my hand in kind of as much as possible is because I know that when, or at least my eyes on something is that if I know, I know that if it messes up, then I have to deal with it. And usually it compounds the work for me. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I can make something without producing it too. Yeah. I think any other movie that I would venture into would not be anything 
near as complicated as what we just pulled off. Sure, I know. It's this is a two hour and thirty eight minute movie that spans kind of from like nineteen sixty two to present day, but really like seventy seven to ninety four, mm-hmm. uh, and it's bulk, you know. So I don't advise it to. I don't. <laughs> I, 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 uh, this is not where you should be getting your directory. It's a director. I, I went to school. Chops. So yeah. I uh-huh. basically this this thing took me to to film school. Okay. Um, I didn't learn as much technical stuff as I would have liked to, but yeah. <laughs> so we talked just a little bit about the the time frame for this. So where does the story start? So uh, the movie starts in kind of like in 1962, 63, the the Berkeley free speech movement. Then moves on to like the people's park protests and uh, just to give people an idea of the kind of activist that comes from Berkeley, you know, sure. the sentiment. And, you know, there was this old rule that in the eighties punk was so fantastic because Reagan was president. Well, if that's true, then California <laughs> had it doubly, yeah, yeah. you know, in that he was our governor too, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? So we go there, but then we pretty quickly move on to the birth of punk in the Bay Area, which was at the Mubuhe Gardens. Yeah. And the uh, butting of heads with Bill Graham that happened back then for mm-hmm. punk. He was not a fan. You know, he uh, put on the Sex Pistols last show and he just, uh, he condemned it. And mm-hmm. he and he was the, the big cheese, you know. And so uh, punk had to find another way, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then from that point on, it, we go over to the Bay and we catch, uh, you know, the birth of punk in the East Bay. Wes Robinson of Ruthie's Inn had a big part in that. Uh, Tim Yohannan, Maximum Rock and Roll was originally San Francisco based, and then it moved to the East Bay, and then it moved back to San Francisco, I think. Hmm. It had just been uh, on both sides of the Bay. KPFA was obviously in Berkeley, um, where the radio station was. And then, you know, it kind of goes from there. I mean, Ruthie's happens, and hardcore happens, and kids started kind of being, if you were in a young band, you know, these places were a little bit seedy. They were a little bit scary, you know? And if you didn't want to get beat up, you started with your friends, you would just start playing in your garages. And before you knew it, every single one of these towns on the outskirts and even towns in Berk or even garages in Berkeley and Albany and closer to kind of the, the hub there, warehouses in Oakland, like new method, you know, people started finding a way kids started young people and, and all ages people started finding a way to create outside of that, that fear, you know, mm-hmm. or that, or that worry of being beat up or ripped off. And then Gilman happens, you know, and uh, there's this, there's so many waves of Gilman. There's kind of like the, the initial wave of Gilman bands. And then there's the kind of, you know, the bands like Isocracy and Crypt Shrine and Operation Ivy, who were the, you know, purveyors of that scene, they break up and you kind of go into the, the next wave of Gilman. You know, Green Day really picks up at that point. Rancid emerges bands like Blatz, where they're just this, who were kind of like early era isocracy. They were just this mess. And then uh, you have queer culture making inroads and to Gilman. And, and it kind of was this more lawless era where, cause Tim Yohannan had already left the club in 88. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of, I think he was overwhelmed, you know, with the responsibility or something, or I think maybe I have this theory that he kind of was trying to test the kids in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, how much does this really mean to you? Like, will you save it? And they did. Can you can you take it over? If yeah. yeah, and they did. And so, no. you know, it kind of it kind of went. It goes through these things, and then uh, Green Day starts to get huge, and Punk starts to get, get more and more huge. Mm-hmm. And then '94, the spot gets kind of blown up, and uh, the scene reacts, and the scene puts up its guard, and and then we go into our epilogue, and we kind of see the aftermath for a while, and then we check out Gilman today, and punk today and and uh when we started this film billy had a couple 
a couple ground rules. Diverse voices, no acrimony, focus on people's contributions, and uh, don't focus on nostalgia, yeah, or don't romanticize or doll it up. There's a lot of documentaries that you, uh, you know, I've watched American Hardcore and the Chicago one uh, called You Weren't There. Mm-hmm. How? Ouch. <laughs> like, it's a great movie, you know, but like, I would never tell somebody who is trying to make community or um, bring people together, oh, it already happened. Too late. Too late. You that know, boat sailed and you know, can't to, do anything. Yeah. yeah to romanticize nostalgia <laughs> like that is yeah. just, is harmful. I don't ever want to be that, that dude. You know, mm-hmm. who's like, oh, back in the day, you know, <laughs> we, we were so much better and all of this crap. That's not, that's also not in the spirit of punk, I think. No, no. And, no. and at least in what I know punk to be. Yeah. You know, it's constantly recreating itself and evolving. And uh, so I was okay with those ground rules, you know, diverse voices, focus on people's contributions and don't romanticize nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so I had a little bit more of a specific question. Do you get into how... Like you meant, you mentioned the whole premise behind turning around the name. Did you get into any of the backstory of why the scene was changing? Why these hardcore bands were coming into San Francisco? Why the skinhead movements were happening? Uh, or is it more of just the reaction to that and, and, uh, what the outcome was? We don't, we don't really go too much into it. I mean, I didn't make a movie about hardcore, you know, I think, I think people, um, hardcore as I know it, emerged due to climate due to um regions due to you know uh the powers that be the feeling of you know the need to release this aggression you know uh it's not all dumb-minded and and Mm -hmm. and aggro i think we you know some of our interviewees make that clear you know but to other people at least like say the people in san francisco who were originally kind of these kind of part of these artful strange or like you know bands they they were like what is this Mm -hmm. like we don't get this we don't understand it. You know, we did have a, a larger scene, I think, about the kind of nationalist skinhead movement that was kind of coming up, but we don't really talk about why it happened. We just yeah. talk about hardcore happening and the racism, you know, coming in. And I mean, places like the farm, people would, you know, a hundred skinheads would show up and just beat the crap out of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, David Duke, you know, he was, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he was you know, uh, purveyor of all that. I don't know if it was, you know, Republicans and, you know, in office or what, what really culturally made those things emerge, but we do focus on how those things affected our scene. Mm-hmm. Under this current presidential administration, do you see any kind of resurgence of, uh, hardcore punk or nationalist ideas creeping their way into the well, yes. scenes? There, there are, people are emboldened. They are, they are coming out from underneath their rocks and they are, there's been a few threats on Gilman mm-hmm. and there's a lot of queer kids, people of color at, at Gilman now. Um, and there's a fear, mm-hmm. there's a fear that, that, um, you know, people are coming into Berkeley and camping out and being like too bad, you know, we're, <laughs> this is where we want to be. So, <laughs> oh, you know, you've seen these, yeah. these, these riots and these demonstrations, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that people keep saying is like, well, you know, now that Trump is president, punk is going to be so much better again. Ooh. <laughs> well, let's look at history. Maybe. Yeah. Now, you know? I kind of don't, I don't care. It's yeah, like, yeah. I don't, I don't, if I would rather have boring punk than <laughs> Donald Trump as a president, you know, <laughs> I don't really want to make that equation, you know, but, but I do see that, um, places like Gilman 
and I want to watch it with a safe space thing because I've got yeah. an, a couple ideas on that. Places like Gilman where people can converge together with like-minded people under kind of a dark, oppressive cloud that doesn't really uh, isn't really friendly to people being themselves, which mm-hmm. is to me the Trump regime. You yeah. know, like they're more important than ever. These yeah. places. Uh, I also do. It's very funny. Uh, somebody in a recent interview told me about a story that I told them that didn't wind it, uh, wind it in the movie, but that Jesse Townley, Jesse Luscious of Blatz, one of the singers of Blatz, had told them back in the 90s at Gilman, if a kid would show up to the door with a swastika on his shirt, mm-hmm. they would tell him, turn your shirt inside out mm-hmm. and you can go in. Yeah, Just don't be violent to anybody. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I do think that there is, and you know, it's a reaction obviously to to continued systematic oppression and that th- 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 a lot of youth culture right now mm-hmm. has zero tolerance for that kind of stuff. When somebody told me that story, I thought to myself, why did Jesse do that? Yeah. And I immediately realized, what if that kid was from Antioch, come, yeah. from, a, come from a family where the dad's beating him up and he just wants to feel like he wants to belong somewhere. Yeah. And so he's chose the swastika yeah. to be a part of something. And then somebody says, Hey, you can go in there. Just turn your shirt inside out. Right. And he walks in, he doesn't beat anybody up. Maybe he had good enough time. Yeah. Maybe he felt included enough uh-huh. that when he left that club, he threw that shirt in the fucking garbage. Yeah. You know, That's a good point. That's and, a great and, point. And so yeah. I would encourage people to allow people to make mistakes. And yeah. I would encourage people to give people a shot. You know, yeah, you can't really transform minds of people if you're not including them in the conversation. And if, if, if you, you can't really them. form a, a, a movement yeah. uh, without pluralism, mm-hmm. you can't, you know, you can't, you, you know what I mean? Like you, mm-hmm. you, you have to have different parties participating and different parties working together to make something ha- happen. So what is the cohesive narrative of this story that you're trying to present? Well, a lot of it's chronological yeah and uh but but overall if you needed to provide somebody with a message of what you think this bay area scene is really about or what the focus of your movie other than just capturing these individual snippets of time is there an overall message that you're trying to yes i think that that there's no perfect example of people coming together but i think early gilman is definitely a good example Mm -hmm. and when you do that, when you come together in spite of your differences with a common cause, which is existing outside of an impressive world, you know, uh-huh. and not allowing that to go on in your community, uh, when you take that risk and you participate and you build instead of destroy, you accept diversity, uh, good things can happen out of that. People are like, how did Operation Ivy, Crimp Shrine, Green Day, Rancid, Neurosis, you know, it goes on and on the, uh, you know, Michael Franti, Miranda July, you know, uh, you know, the, the people who traveled through like the offspring considered Gilman home, bikini mm-hmm. kill, uh, Fugazi. How can something like that exist? But was such a Renaissance. It was such an amazing time. I would like people to take from the film is that, uh, if you put in the effort and you take that risk of working with people and, and accepting people, Good things can happen out of that. In fact, great things can come out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I hope people get from the film. Excellent. How did you get Iggy Pop involved in this project? Uh, he's narrating this film. This is awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Godfather uh, of Punk, basically. So, about 
a year or more into the project, uh, we wanted to originally do an oral history mm -hmm. told by the people who lived it. And we realized that the scope of time that we were trying to cover and the amount of people that we wanted to have in the film, that if we were able to condense some themes, mm -hmm. that uh, our movie was originally like five hours long but when we had mm -hmm. cut it down from 500 hours yeah, yeah. of interview footage. We contemplated doing a series. I said, well, the only way to really make this work, I told Billy, I think, is to have a narrator in here. Not but 10 minutes, not, not but, you know, it doesn't have to be- summarize some To summarize some points, yeah. yeah. He says, yeah, okay, let's, let's think about a narrator. So I thought of somebody local with a cool voice. I thought of uh, Tom Waits. Sure. He's a local guy. Because we were like, if we get somebody in the scene, then everybody's like, why is that person the voice of the scene? Mm -hmm. So we had to get a, kind of an outlier and out, yeah, you know, yeah. somebody from the outside. So one day he comes in and goes, what about, Billy says, what about Iggy Pop? We were his backing band on some songs on his album Skull Ring. Sure. He might be up for helping us out. I said, what about Iggy Pop, man? That would be fantastic. And the next thing I know, I'm in an email thread with him and uh, I send him the script and he loves it and says that he has some ideas. So suddenly uh, I feel <laughs> like I'm collaborating with Iggy Pop yeah, and yeah. then I'm on the phone with him. We're talking about cats and his <laughs> wife's cats and coming out to his his home in Miami. And before we knew it, we were on a plane and we were set up in his living room recording narration. Uh -huh. It was an experience I will never forget. <laughs> uh, it He was so friendly and so accommodating and excited. He listened to, you know, he's telling me about listening to the Turn It Around comp and Christ yeah. on Parade. And yeah, yeah. He really tried to get an education. And he also had these ideas about, um, you know, because, you know, Search and Destroy, you know, that was like the one of the earliest San Francisco punk zines and it was yeah. funded by the beats, you know, due in part, you know, and, and it was named after a Stooges song, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, you know, he, uh, had his interactions with Bill Graham and he knew <laughs> that Graham was not really supportive of kind of, you know, wily performers and sure, sure. <laughs> you know, this kind <laughs> of stuff, you know? Uh, so I, I, I just, it was very clear that even though, he, you know, he was never self-identified as punk, uh -huh. um, that he had that punk spirit. And that he was, it was like, he understood all of the things that I was yeah, yeah. trying to convey to him about, because, you know, he's from Ann Arbor, you know, oh, yeah. uh, it was just basically like Berkeley in many ways. Uh -huh. So he understood those concepts too. And he also agreed that San Francisco was like a Mecca, you know, the mm -hmm. Bay Area was this, you know, at the end of the sea, it was this place that everybody would kind of float, you know, so uh, it was a fun thing. So then when you brought in, you knew you were going to need a narrator. Obviously, you needed to kind of storyboard the, the segments out. Did you work with him on that? When he came on to narrate, we already kind of knew where we wanted narration. Sure. So, you know, we sent him, I think, 15 or 16 different narration pieces. Uh-huh. You know, he would say, that that doesn't sound so natural, me saying, you know. Or he even had, you know, certain ideas about about things he remembered yeah. at the time. And so, like, really, it was suddenly. Oh, that's pretty cool. I don't know. It was just <laughs> like I'm just a guy sitting in Panol, you know, and like, you know, <laughs> like he wants to do this. So sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's a great, great idea, Iggy Pop. Jeez, wow. So, so other than working with Iggy Pop, you've interviewed hundreds of people yes. for this. Talk about what it takes to set up interviews with you with know, people just in general. Well, so so we had uh, what 185 interviewees. My wife took to calling me the punk whisper. <laughs> um, my, you know, on a bad day where I'm trying to, 
you know, convince or corral somebody into participating, I would say that I had to learn to speak fluent burnout, which <laughs> I was pretty good at anyways, you know, already, you know, uh-huh. uh, but on my, on my, you know, the days where it wasn't so difficult, which were most of the days, you know, everybody was so wonderful and accommodating and friendly and supportive and shared their sacred stories. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, and, and people have these ideas. Well, you know, so green day is producing this. Did they control your narrative? Mm-hmm. I can tell you like <laughs> they were excited producers. Yeah. Yeah, there was never, there was never, there was never any kind of, message from above that came down and said you know none of that or or take that out or any of this you know people assume this about people who are have kind of this lofty station duff mckagan's in your movie kirk hammett's in your movie you know michael franti kathleen hannah iggy pop you know mm-hmm. um i bet you they were all jerks you know nope <laughs> actually those people were probably more easy yeah. to work with um you know i think they have a bit more ease in their walk so sure. maybe they have you know, less excuse to be unfriendly. You know, uh-huh. I would, I would contact somebody. I would come up with my talking points. We were, we had Robert Eggplant, Kamala Parks, Dave Mello, the drummer of Op Ivy. A lot of these people, uh, Tim Armstrong helped us with animation. Aaron Comitbus, uh, his handwriting's all over our movie. Jesse Michaels did, uh, from Op Ivy did, uh, art for our whole movie. We actually had a lot of people who lived that story in our office as production assistants. Okay. Or like, and, so when I was coming up with talking points, I would have my own and they were like, well, you know, you might uh-huh. want to ask them about this. Uh-huh. So helpful. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I, we would get in there and, and part of it was that we want to do an oral, his, oral history. So please, a yes answer or a no answer doesn't help me. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a story. Use the, use the question and the answer if you can. You know? uh-huh. And a lot of people were so nervous, they, they just, I couldn't get them to do it. You know? uh-huh. uh, out of 185 people, 15 didn't make the cut. Hmm. So. And I tell those people, for some weird reason, even though I didn't come into the scene like 94, 95, I was interviewed for Give Me Something Better, and I wound up in the online version. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Geek became like the sole representative of our crew in yeah. the book, and uh-huh. I was so bummed. And I tell <laughs> the 15 people who didn't make this, it's nothing personal. Uh-huh. It was thematic. You happened uh-huh. to be in this one scene that we decided brokenheartedly to cut, you know? So I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What were some highlights of this other than obviously working with Iggy Pop? What name name one or two other highlights of this movie personally for you? Uh, meeting uh, Lair Lalonde from Primus. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, he was in a punk band out of Penol called Corrupted Morals, uh, where at a certain point uh, he and Billy Joe were sh- uh, switching off uh, guitar duties. It was like mm-hmm. this hardcore band, mm-hmm. kind of a crossover band too, a little bit, kind of kind of metal hardcore a little bit. I love his guitar playing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. And to me, you know, growing up in Pinole, Lair went to Pinole Valley high school. He was also an Elsa Brandy guy, mm-hmm. which it's Pinole sister city. Mm-hmm. You, you know, Elsa Brandy, if you know, Pinole, you know, you know, just such a chill, fun dude. And he was so, uh, it was like, it's like speaking to somebody who, who speaks your language or something like the guy. It was just, it was like a dream come true for our whole crew. You know, who maybe were on the fringes of punk early mm-hmm. on, you know, who were like, we love Primus. We thought they yeah, were great, yeah. you know, that they were weird and cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a great moment for me. Uh, meeting Kathleen Hanna was a trip. She was so kind and sweet and wonderful and informative and helpful. And just uh, Michael Franti, dude, what? <laughs> I mean, you got your start, you know, in the beatniks and you played Gilman and 
now you're this like multi-platinum world music artist and like you know you're telling stories of playing gilman and then getting a call from you too to and mm-hmm. you know and like I don't, I don't, <laughs> you know i i don't know there i think meeting a lot of the people the famous people that was obviously like a big deal but um meeting underground legends i had never known like like meeting all the neurosis guys that was such a trip i mean you know get, getting metal mike corralling him to be part of this thing you know <laughs> like from the angry samoans uh i would say the people were the, were the best part of the journey for me mm-hmm. let's get into when is this film going to get released i know you're so working it, on that it, it premieres uh may 31st uh at the san francisco documentary festival on the opening night gala premiere at the alamo draft house in the new mission new alamo draft house new mission in san francisco so that's the world premiere the yeah. festival premiere two days later it starts its opening theatrical run for five days from june 2nd to 6th at the alamo draft house in san francisco and then it goes on to play a few times uh the dates haven't been determined yet in late june i think and the east bay as a benefit for gilman then in we promote 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 and I th- in late July, uh, the national theatrical run were, will roll out will happen worldwide. I mean, it, yeah. it already New York, Moscow, Los Angeles, theaters everywhere. Awesome, um, not like popcorn theaters, oh, you know, but yeah, like yeah. college towns or whatever. Sure, and then DVD and Blu-ray and digital streaming, all that stuff soon after. Follow, yeah. So this is the biggest shot, like the biggest canon I've been of access I've ever <laughs> been th- shot through. You know, yeah, yeah. like I, I don't even know what I, I I've been working with these kind of industry professionals for, you know, a year or two, you know? So, um, yeah, so that, that's the rollout, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's happening. And, uh, whether I, whether I like it or not, <laughs> you know, uh, well, what's the website for people to go to check the latest uh, news? Eastbaypunk.com. Got it. And there's ticket links and all the up-to-date news. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, uh, it's going to be a ride. I mean, from, from, uh, late May to, Mid September, it's like this hybrid distribution kind of thing where, you know, basically we have a six month life for this film. Uh-huh. It almost doesn't seem real because we, you know, three and a half years is a long time. And there was a lot of um, making something like this happen through licensing and, uh, you know, through everything. It was just, it feels impossible. You know, <laughs> uh, the, the uh, entertainment lawyer on the project, Anita First Esquire, she's just, this town, I want to say thank you to you, to, to Anita. She, she said in her 35 years of doing entertainment law, she'd never seen anything like this accomplished. <laughs> she, you know, cause it was, it, it, and I hope people, when they watch it will go, holy crap. Like, even if they don't have an idea of, you know, legality or anything like that, that they, they see the care and, uh, you know, it's not without its flaws. Trust me. Mm-hmm. There's things I wish we covered. There's people that we, I wish we had talking more, you know, um, I see every one of them. <laughs> nah. You know, I know what's missing, yeah. you know, but I would encourage people to give it a chance. Watch it a couple of times uh, because there's a lot of things that foreshadow and come back. And when people watch it again, they're like, oh, you know, I, I see, I see what that uh-huh. was all about, you know? So, uh, so far people are like, it's authoritative, it's definitive, the fidelity of information, you know, it's a two and a half hour movie. It might affect the kind of overall marketability of the thing. Um, my friend Gabe Moline, who's also in the film, He's doing a piece on it. And he said, you know, there's an old rule with documentaries where people say, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, mm-hmm. but that's really not a great rule to, you know, to use. And like, mm-hmm. you didn't cut any corners. 
Yeah. You know, so that, that made me feel good. Yeah. Well, excellent. So after a big pause and breath and probably a well-earned vacation, what do you, what do you think you might have planned next? You mentioned some, some plans for Bobby Joe Bola possibly in the future. Yeah. It's funny. Dan Dan and I sat down and we were like, all right, so whatever we do next, you know, our lives are different. Dan's a teacher now, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a dad and you know, whatever we do next has to be manageable. It has to, we built our lives around the band before, but our lives have to be built around the band now. And we both agreed that was like mm-hmm. the, the first rule. And then the thing that we started talking about is just insane. It was like, what? <laughs> like, why? Like, well, that just sounds like five or 10 more seizures, you know, or like fucking, you know, hernias. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know. Uh, I really, again, I turned 40. I'm a dad. This is the first, this is the biggest canon of access anything i've made creatively has been shot through Mm. the world is a big scary place already and (laughs) i'm even more everyone says i'm supposed to say excited but fearful you know of like of what i have no idea like i would like to train myself to be able to not be on call 24 hours a day yeah for a project i would like to see if i can retrain myself and my reflex to chill out yeah and to enjoy <laughs> my days you know we'll see <laughs> if, that, if that happens but i've just been such a machine for this thing um it's taught me to at least think about what's next in a way that that is i think more healthy and kind of uh easier to navigate so i know that's not a really great answer but <laughs> hey man that's what the truth is so. choosing life choosing life man choosing life that's all good choosing well, music life radio yes Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, Corbett, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you uh, for inviting me out to your home studio. And uh, Thanks for having me great. on the show again. I really yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thanks. All right, I look forward to watching this movie and telling everybody about it. All right, thank you. Dan, thank you, man. <laughs> In the land of nothing's free Where the poorly hold for more Most of us see the same two choices Do
That was Pac-Man and Pop-Tarts by Bobby Joe Abola and the Children McNuggets. Thanks for tuning in to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Slaughter, and we'll catch you next time.